Let's turn to our Bibles this morning. We'll be in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And one of the beauties of, of teaching expositionally is you kind of know where you're going next. And we've been working our way through John. And uh, now we move into a section of Scripture. I've never taught on Judas Iscariot. And so now this is an, kind of an interesting study for me. To be honest with you, I didn't like it. It was a struggle for me to study someone who truly, I think, hated Jesus and who was truly a, a traitor. And so as we take a look at this text, I, I just want to want to call you as the church. I, I really believe that this is a warning to the church, a warning for each of us as we sit in our chairs in the comfort of air conditioning in sunny California to not fall asleep in understanding your closeness to the Lord. Beware, we have an enemy. He is on the prowl. He wants us to fall. And I think as we take a look at Judas' life and some of the things that he did and said, we'll realize just the tragedy of that life. Now understand, John wrote this gospel, the gospel of John, so that people reading this gospel would come to faith, that they would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they would turn to Him by faith and believe. And, and particularly, I think, in this section, John is going to use contrasts. He's going to contrast the, the true disciple with the ultimate false disciple, who is Judas Iscariot. Let's begin by reading the text. This is John chapter 13. We'll start in verse 18. The first section will go down to verse 25. And John writes, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit. And testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. And so Peter, Simon Peter, gestured to him and and said to him, tell us who is it of whom you are speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? So what is the difference between a true disciple and a false disciple? First thing we'll see this morning, false disciples are devoted to themselves, but they're difficult to recognize. False disciples are devoted to themselves, but they're they're difficult to recognize. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 3, you must be born again if you're going to enter into heaven. But can I tell you the truth? It's very difficult for us to know the heart of man. I can't see your heart. I can't see your heart. God calls us to know our own walk, our own heart before Christ. Now, as a way of review, Jesus and the disciples, they're in the upper, upper room. This is the Last Supper. This is right before he goes out to the garden and, and they come and they take him and then they'll try him and he'll be crucified on a cross. And, and if you remember, Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. Literally, this section is right after he's washed their feet. And in verses 14 and 15, it says, If I then, the Lord, the teacher, washed your feet, also you ought to wash one another's feet, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I do to you. Jesus 
performs this great act of sacrificial service for his own disciples. He, he bends down and he washes each one of their feet. Remember, he actually washed Judas' feet as well. And so he's displayed this, this Christ-like love, this sacrificial service before them. And he says, you know, you should do as I do. As I am an example to you, you be an example to others. This is an example of what a Christian is. I mean, humility before others, service for others. But recognizing whether or not somebody is a true or false believer, I, I don't know if we have that capability. I mean, there are evidences, and we, we'll talk about some of them here. It's not difficult for God, though. Jesus knew. Jesus, being God in the flesh, knew that Simon, not Simon, but Judas was a, was a traitor. And look at verse 18. It says, I do not speak of all of you, and I know the ones I have chosen but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus says, I don't speak of all of you, and I know the ones I've chosen. This idea of chosen is not election, chosen for salvation. He's talking about just choosing the 12 disciples. He's saying, hey, I know the ones that I've chosen here. and I chose each of you for a purpose, and, and he even chose Judas knowing Judas' heart, knowing that one day Judas would be a traitor. And I think he's saying this so that the disciples will begin to understand that, th that he chose them for a purpose. And, and when all these events take place, which is just in a couple hours, that they will not be swayed from the truth that they're calling on your life that, that we just spoke about. There's a call on each of us. We are chosen by him. We have a purpose for Christ's sake, but, but not for Judas. Judas doesn't want that calling. Now, we know that Jesus knew about Judas way ahead of time because in John chapter 6, verse 64, this is what he says. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray them. And so he says again here, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. There's a commentator, his name is Leon Morris. He says, Jesus was not caught off guard. He was not deceived and a helpless victim, but he as unsuspected treachery. And what Jesus does here in verse 18, he quotes Psalm 41, verse 9. This is a psalm by David. And David had been betrayed by a close friend. And Psalm 41, verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. David had experienced treachery, and, and, and God, looking forward, uses that example as a, as a looking forward, as a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And we all know also that David experienced treachery even from his own son, Absalom, who tried to have him killed and take over his kingdom. And Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13 also speaks of this coming traitor. It speaks that he will receive 30 pieces of silver and sell out the coming Messiah. And we know that's exactly what Judas did. So, so Jesus is not surprised at this treachery, at this one who will betray him. And he wants to, to help the disciples be prepared. So he tells them in verse 19, from now on I'm telling you this before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Jesus is concerned. He's concerned because he knows how kind of shaky ground these disciples are at this point. I mean, in their minds, they're still thinking that this Messiah has come to establish the kingdom now, overthrow Rome. But very quickly that Jesus is going to end up hanging on a cross, and so he's letting them know now about the events that are going to happen so that they won't be knocked over. 
But the disciples, they are clueless. They have no idea that it's Judas. And so, so Jesus says to them in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives, whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, when I looked at that verse, it seems a little out of place. He's, he's talking about this betrayer, about Judas, and suddenly he kind of throws this in about receiving him and receives me and that kind of thing. I think what he's doing is he's letting them know kind of ahead of time when all these events take place, when I'm betrayed and, and, and this betrayer Judas does this and I'm taken away and hung on a cross, he says, I'm letting you know ahead of time that my call is on you. And whoever I've called, it's like receiving me. And understand, even when all this falls down, when all everything seems like it's lost, it's not lost. This has been preordained before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus begins by preparing his disciples, but in his humanness. And this is where you see the, I guess, the pain in his heart. Look at verses 21 and 22. Then when Jesus has said this, he became troubled in the spirit. And he testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking of. Now, some people wonder how they could have been fooled by Judas, but I, I think you've got to think this through with me. Is Judas was with them for the whole three years like the other disciples. I mean, he was considered one who had integrity. He was given the authority over the money box. Now, nobody really knew at that point that he'd been stealing the whole time. He looked very religious. He was at all the prayer meetings. He did all the stuff. And he was liked by all the disciples. He had them all fooled. But Jesus wasn't fooled. Jesus knew who he was and what his heart was. And as a matter of fact, Matthew 26 says that, that the disciples were deeply grieved and each one began to say, surely not I, Lord. I mean, think about it. Before they even thought of Judas, they thought of themselves, didn't they? And I think each of us have to be honest before the Lord when we kind of dig down deep and look at the blackness of our own hearts. Sometimes we think, wow, Lord, could it be me? I mean, just like that play we have here, right? The Living Lord's Supper. There's an evidence in our heart. We know that we're not perfect before God. And we know it's only by God's grace that we're saved. And so I think the, the disciples here, they're questioning even themselves, but they don't question about Judas because I think they all think, wow, he's such a good guy. And obviously, Jesus trusts him with the money and, and all the stuff. Can I just tell you, it's not easy to recognize somebody, whether or not they're a true disciple or a false disciple. God knows our hearts. There is a parable in the Scriptures that's called the wheat and the tares. It speaks on this. And it's found in Matthew 13, 24 through 30. And for the sake of time, I'm, I'm not going to read it, but the, the basic of that parable is that you have wheat and you have tares. And and there's a farmer who sows the wheat, and then his enemies come, and they, they sow tares. Now, tares is a weed. It's a darnel seed. And if you were to look at the two of them side by side, you honestly wouldn't probably, we wouldn't be able to know what it was. And you really can't even recognize it, because when they start to sprout and grow, they look exactly like a wheat plant. You really can't tell until the wheat begins to bud, till it reaches maturity. It's, it's over time. It's the same way in the church. There are people in the church that are tares. There are others that are we, that are true disciples of Christ. And, and the tear, oftentimes, you can't tell. They, they sit in the pew. They're dressed nice. They, they serve. They're, they're active in ministry. And sometimes it's very difficult for us to know, but God knows the heart. He knows the secret intent of the heart. 
And our job is not to inspect wheat or tares. Our job is to inspect ourselves, to know your heart before God. As a matter of fact, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to, f- to confirm your calling and your election. In Philippians 2.12, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things so that you may know that you have a, eternal life. The Scriptures say that we are to know this that we are to have that assurance of our own salvation, that we understand our heart before a holy God, that, that we understand that we, we know Him and, and love Him and have this relationship. We are to examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. Now, the Bible does say that we are to examine some, and, and it calls them wolves. Now, we can tell a wolf because a wolf teaches false doctrine. And so very, they're easily recognized. They want to steal sheep. But for somebody that you might say is a false disciple, oftentimes you can't know until they're exposed. And so the disciples did not know Judas was a traitor. In verse 22, it says the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking. I think the shock of hearing that Jesus himself is actually going to be be betrayed, it kind of hits them and they start looking at each other like, what? One of us? I I mean, we've been with them over three years now. I mean, this is three and a half years with the Lord. I think they're just stunned at this point. And you know, I love Peter. He's never a patient man right? And so Peter's like, okay, who is it? And he's checking it out, and he's trying to figure it out. It's interesting, he's going to deny the Lord, right? But I think he actually, you know, he loves the Lord. But Peter begins to wonder, and and he sees John over there, and John's next to Jesus, and so instead of going directly to Jesus, he kind of, he's closer to John, and so he asks John. Look at verses 23 through 25. It says, therefore, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, and so Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And leaning back, thus on Jesus' bosom, he said to him, Lord, who is it? It's interesting the way the, this meal is kind of set up. It's a picture of contrasts. And all the commentators I read and kind of looking at the way that people are positioned around Jesus and need to understand it's not like it is in Da Vinci's painting. There isn't a table with a big old loaf of bread on it and people sitting in chairs all facing the camera, right? It's not that way. It's a low table. They're all on the ground, and most likely they're, they're kind of laying on their left side and grabbing food with their right. And, and so the picture is you have John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, on his right, and you have Judas, the one who hated Jesus, on his left. What a picture of contrasts. And you have these two, one on each side. Now, these are the places of honor. These are the ones that they fought about earlier. Hey, I want to be on your right and your left. When you come into your kingdom, remember all that? This is the picture that you have here. And I think the Holy Spirit organized it this way so that we now, thousands of years later, can look and see how how God is orchestrating this event even here. And so they're seated around Jesus, kind of laying down. And then you have on one side John the disciple whom Jesus loved and, and the other disciple who hated Jesus. You have one who's devoted to Christ and one who's devoted to self. You have these, these opposites here. But you need to understand something. Judas was not a victim. There were some commentators that tried to say, oh, he was a victim. He just wanted to see them overthrow Rome. And, you know, he was no victim. He knew exactly what he was doing. He had a lust for money, a lust for power. He didn't care whether or not Jesus lived. Matter of fact, he sells them out for 30 pieces of silver. It's 20 bucks. 
He was a man who loved himself to the point, the contrast is, is that he hated the Lord of glory. I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton made a profession of faith when he was age 19 in a Nazarene church. And then about four years later, he started a church in Toronto, Canada. The first night, he had 112 people show. And by the end of six months, they had over 1,200 people coming to nightly services. They had so many people, they had to close the doors and not let everybody in because they couldn't handle so many people. And Chuck Templeton, he was a very handsome man. He, he was a man who could speak well and, and he could garner your interest. He, was, he, was just, he had this ability to, to converse and speak. And, and he became a good friend of Billy Graham in their 20s. And they met backstage at a Chicago Youth for Christ rally in 1945 at the Chicago Stadium. It was packed with over 20,000 teenagers. And, and Billy Grand spoke very highly of his friend. And he considered Chuck Templeton to actually be more gifted than he was in evangelism. After the Chicago rally, Chuck returned to Toronto, Canada, and he organized a Youth for Christ in Canada. And it quickly became the largest Youth for Christ in all of the world. Every Saturday night, they had over 2,500 high school kids. And during the 1940s, Youth for Christ was snowballing into large cities in North America, and Toronto rally led by Chuck Templeton was by far the largest. And so he and Billy Graham and, and others, they formed a Youth for Christ International, and he was made one of the vice presidents, and he was one of the ones that recommended Billy Graham be the main evangelist for all the Youth for Christ events around the United States. In 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals listed Chuck Templeton as the best used of God even superseding Billy Graham. However, Chuck was having major doubts at the validity of the Bible and even his own salvation. And what he did is he kept it a secret. He didn't tell anybody. And it got so bad that he even began to doubt whether or not he even knew Christ at all, but yet he, he put up this front. He would preach about Christ, but he didn't believe what he was preaching. He began to be a hypocrite, a hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. They look one way, but actually they're another. He claimed the love of Christ, yet he had no love of Christ. He was like a Judas. False disciples are devoted to themselves, but they're difficult to recognize. Second thing is false disciples are influenced by the devil, but they look religious. False disciples are influenced by the devil, but they look religious Understand that Satan is the ruler of this world system. And if a person does not know Christ, then they will be under the rule of Satan. Look at verses 26 through 30. Then Jesus answered and said, This is the one for whom I shall dip a morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have in need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, it begins here, and Jesus answered, that is the one of whom I shall dip the morsel in and give it to. If you think about this, Judas is on the left side, and it's only he and Jesus that actually know the truth here, which is really interesting. Jesus, the one he's going to betray, is the one who's actually protecting Judas from the other disciples. 
And from the very beginning, Judas looked very religious. He was very active in ministry. He was great at putting on a show. He had charge over one of the most important parts of the ministry, which was money. But what people didn't know is he had a a love for money. That root of evil that we read about, that had got him. It was in his heart, and he had this desire for money and things and power. And Judas continued to be a thief and steal throughout Jesus' ministry. And in spite of all the Lord's warning on all the teachings he did on money, all the teachings he did on covetousness, all the teachings that Jesus did about sin, all the miracles that that he saw, Judas' heart got harder and harder and harder as the years went on. And so Jesus, he, he gives him the morsel in verse 26. It says, when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. And if you think about the irony here, Jesus had just washed his feet. He had just performed this act of love, this sacrificial act, of, the act of, of humility here, of washing his feet. And, and then he just lets everyone know there's a traitor and then he, he displays who that traitor is by giving him that morsel. Now some people teach that, that Judas was created for destruction. That when God created Judas, he already had in his mind, this is going to be the one who will be destroyed. But can I tell you something? I don't believe that's true. Now, the proof text for that is John chapter 17, verse 12. I'm going to read it for you. Jesus says, while I was with him, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, and I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Judas is known as the son of destruction, because he gave himself over to the destroyer. It was his decision. He will stand before God and give an account. He was with the Lord of glory from the beginning. He was with the best preacher who ever lived, who ever preached for over three and a half years. He saw every miracle that Jesus performed, and yet he denied him. Now, the reason I don't think he was created for that purpose As Jesus himself said in Mark 14, 21, it would have been better if this man was never born. Jesus, being the creator of all things, created him. He had an opportunity. And I think this is a warning for us in the church. He opened himself up to the schemes of the enemy. He lived a sinful life that was a secret that nobody saw but him. And he thought he had everybody fooled, but God is never fooled. He knows the heart and the intent of the heart. And it says in verse 27 that after the morsel, Satan entered into him. And then for Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Judas is a warning for us. He really is. That if you have secrets in your life that you're trying to keep secret from a living God, trust me, it's no secret. It will come to light. And Judas was someone who trusted in his own devices, in his own ways, his own selfish ways. He wanted to do things the way that he wanted them to do. Judas' love for self and lust for money and the things of this world, it set him up for a fall. He was set up. And and Judas, he spurns Christ's final gesture of love to him. Jesus makes a pronouncement 
that someone is going to betray him. This is an opening right there. This was his opportunity right there. This was that door of escape that he had. But his heart was cold. His mind was set. And at the moment that he received that morsel, that, his day of salvation, it ended right there. It was sealed. He sealed his faith and he went out and he did the evil that he did. Now, it's interesting in the study of this, I found that this was not the first time that he was possessed by the devil. It was the second time. Luke 22.2 says the chief priests and scribes were seeking how they might put him to death for they were afraid of the people and Satan entered into Judas who was called Iscariot belonging to the number of the twelve and he went away and he discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. That was a couple days before this event. Two times Satan came into him because he was open to the ways of the enemy. Judas had denied Christ from the beginning. He had an opportunity to turn. He had that final door open. But he would not take it. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 this, he says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. And there's a progression that takes place in the heart of somebody who's tempting, who's going towards those things of the flesh that they want. And Paul says that there is a way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. I've been reading a book entitled The Disciplines of a Godly Man by R. Kent Hughes. And, and he uses the picture of David's life with his sin with Bathsheba to say as there is a downward progression that happens in the heart of a person who wants to run towards a temptation. And he lays out five things. And I just want to kind of share these with you because I think it's such a picture of Judas for us. Hugh says the first thing that happens when a person is beginning to want something they know is sinful is already their hearts have become desensitized to sin. The first one is desensitization. David's case, he was desensitized to sexual sin. Understand in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, it lays out three prescriptions for a king. Number one, it said that a king should not have a lot of horses. Number two, a king should not have a lot of money. And number three, a king should not have a lot of wives. Well, David did pretty good with number one, number two, but he absolutely failed in number three. He had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines. And allowing him, even though it was considered lawful in that culture, it was not lawful to God. And he opened himself up to the work of the enemy. He became desensitized to lust. This is why pornography is so ugly in our day. It is the hidden sin in the church. There are so many men, and even women now, who have given themselves over to the sin of lust. And David was set up, and so as he goes on the roof to walk in the cool of the evening, and he sees this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, bathing, his heart was already given over. He was desensitized to that sin. Judas is the same way. He'd been stealing money for years. I mean, what's another 20 bucks in the coffers to betray the Lord? His heart had already been given over. He'd become desensitized to that sin. The second one is relaxation. Relaxation. It's a, a walking away from the Christian disciplines. It's a walking away from the disciplines of life. And, and David, he was a king. It was the time of war, and, and he should have been out to battle, but he decided, I'm going to take a break. 
And how often we as Christians will say, you know, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm not going to spend any time with the Lord today. And then it's tomorrow. And then it's this week. And maybe I won't even go to church. And who needs to read the Bible anyway? And, you know, prayer doesn't seem to work. And you can go on and on. You relax. You let down your guard. And, of course, that's what David had done as well. He had let down his guard. And Judas, the same way. I don't think Judas had any disciplines. I think he was fooling everybody the whole time anyway. Desensitized and relaxation. And the third one is fixation. David should have turned away. He's standing there on the roof. He sees this naked woman. He knows it's not right. He should have turned away. Okay, the first glance, that happened. Second one was on him. But it became more than a glance. He fixated. He leered. Became like a dirty old man. Began to leer at Bathsheba. And the same thing, I think, with Judas. Judas began to fixate on what he could get. He wanted more power. He wanted, you know, the kingdom. He wanted to be part of that work. And, and so I think, he says, I'm going to speed things up a bit. And he got fixated on that gold. It overtook him. Desensitization, relaxation, fixation. The fourth one is rationalization. David began to rationalize his sin even though he knew it was wrong. I mean, think about it. David calls a servant over and he says, hey, who is that? And the servant says, oh, that's Bathsheba. Listen, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, right? Okay, she's married. Okay, that's out. you're out already, right? But he begins to rationalize it. Now, it's interesting, Uriah the Hittite, Uriah was one of his commanders. Not only that, he was one of his mighty men. The mighty men, there were only 30 of them. They were considered the top fighting guys. They were handpicked by David personally. He knew him well. And then he begins to rationalize. You know what? I, I think that, that I'm the king and, and, and she's there. I know. I've never seen a woman as beautiful. I think she's my soulmate. <laughs> Rationalizing, right? Or maybe he's thinking, you know, she hasn't been with her husband for months and, and I'm just really helping her. She's lonely. And so I want to step in the gap for her husband and no one will know. It's okay. And I think the same thing goes with Judas as well. Isn't that the way sin works? We begin to rationalize in our minds. It's not really a sin, right? It's a white lie. It's no big deal. And Judas is doing the same thing. He's rationalizing, you know, this is going to be the betterment of the kingdom. You know, when all this is taking place and, you know, Jesus can perform miracles and he's taken into custody, he's going to perform some wow miracle and overthrow Rome. No. It was a lie by the enemy. Here's the fifth one, degeneration. Degeneration. This progression down, desensitization, relaxation, fixation, rationalization, now degeneration. David would not listen to the warnings. He was already set up for the fall. He degenerated down. He, he goes against the very man who he picked out as one of his mighty men. He, he knows he's going to be with a married woman. He goes against what he knows is right. He knows he's sinning against God. He gives himself over to lust. When he gave himself over, he had his fall. And nothing was going to turn Judas from what he had planned at this point. Jesus gave him the out. Here you go. Here's your out. There's a traitor here. That was his moment, man. He could have taken it, but he had gone so low that he couldn't escape. The trap was already set. Now, it didn't say it in the Bible, but I think the devil comes along to David and starts whispering in his ear, it's okay, you're the king. You can do whatever you want. In the same way, the devil came along to Judas and said, go for it, and entered into him. Now, Jesus was never fooled by Judas, but the disciples were. 
Verses 28 through 30 says, now no, one, now no one reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had sent him. Some thought he was going out for the, with the money box and to buy things and others had a need for the feast or else that he should give something to the poor. He looks very religious here, doesn't he? Oh, he's going to go give money to the poor. That's what Judas is doing. He had them all fooled. But Jesus was never fooled. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now, Chuck Templeton was super active in ministry for years. He put up a good front. He and Billy Graham became good friends. They did many events together. He was an incredible preacher. But his doubts began to get worse and worse. And, and, and so instead of going to someone and saying, look, I'm struggling in my faith, instead what he started to do was read liberal scholars that fed his doubts. The first book he read was by a gentleman by the name of Thomas Paine called The Age of Reason. Chuck Templeton said in a book that he wrote, he said, uh, in just a few hours, nearly everything I knew and believed about Christianity was demolished. And over the next 10 days, he read Francis Voltaire's Bible Explained. He read Bertrand Russell's Why I'm Not a Christian. He read Hume. He read Huxley. All these guys are liberal scholars. They don't believe that the Bible is inerrant and true. And this man's faith, it just tanked. But yet he never told anyone. He kept it a secret. Guys, this is the way the devil works. He uses lies, deceit, which causes doubt, which causes discouragement. And some of you might be here this morning. You've been playing games. You know who you are. But God would say you beware. This is your moment. If you're feeling it, you're saying, Lord, I've been playing games with you. This is the moment this morning. You can turn, you can repent, you can expose the lie, and you can be free in Christ. Chuck's life spun out of control. It got so bad, he knew he was living a lie, but he lived it for years, and finally he couldn't take it anymore. And in 1957, he walked away from his faith, he walked away from his church. He was a false disciple. He ended up writing a book called Farewell to God. And he died in 2001, a broken man, a confused man. He even said, I miss Jesus. But he never received Christ. He never confessed his sin. He never repented. And he died a horrible death, just like Judas. And he ended up in hell with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But he had moments throughout where God gave him ways of escape. Two things. False disciples are devoted to themselves but are difficult to recognize. False disciples are influenced by the devil but look religious. And the last one, true disciples are known for their love. True disciples are known for their love. I think the love of the saints is the best evidence that you're a true Christian, the love for one another. Let's finish it off. 31 through 35 says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus says, Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer, and you will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also have love for one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus begins with the, the glory of God. He says, look, when, when I go to do what I have to do, when I am obedient to the Father, when I go to the cross, this is going to glorify God the Father, and this is going to bring glory to me. So he begins with God's glory. 
God is glorified by the son's obedience. And then he shifts, and, and he says in verse 33, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, as I said to the Jews. Now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. He knows he's going to the cross. It's just a couple hours away. He knows that it's coming. And everything is shifting. He's going to leave. The disciples are going to stay. But then as a last instruction, he gives them this final commandment. Look at verses 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also have love for one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. Do you understand that, that the, the, the evidence of our faith is a love for God and a love for others, right? That's the, the greatest command, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and love others. And so those two things are the evidence of our faith. But, but Jesus is saying, look, there are a lot of things that are an evidence of your faith. There's humility and a desire for His Word and there's serving and, and all these things. But if you're going to put something at the very top for an evidence, something that shows that you love Jesus, you know what it is? It's love for one another, love for you guys together. Christian love. It reveals our hearts before God. It reveals this community of the saints. It, it shows that, that we have this relationship with the living God. Now, Francis Schaeffer says there's two evidences of Christian love. Number one, that you are willing to forgive others who have offended you. That's an evidence of love, that, that you're willing to say, you know what, you've hurt me, but I, I forgive you because I've been forgiven so much. You know what the other one is? Is that you're willing to go to somebody and confess that you've offended them and ask their forgiveness. One, willing to forgive. The others, admit you need forgiveness. Those are the clearest evidence of the love of God, that you're willing to do that with your fellow brothers and sisters. And those are the biggest problems that we have in the church, <laughs> is people get offended, and they won't own up to it. Or you've been offended, and you won't forgive. The evidence of Christian love is love for one another. And as a way of closing, I, I, it makes me think about Corey Ten Boom. Now, many of you know who Corrie Ten Boom is. She wrote The Hiding Place, and, and she was in, in German occupation. She'd been in a concentration camp for years, and her and her sister Betsy were in the same concentration camp for years, and, and her sister Betsy died inside the concentration camp. And, and after World War II, God used Corrie Ten Boom as a public speaker to go around talking about the grace of God, how it was available, and how God moved and showed grace to those who'd even done the worst kind of sins. And Corey shares that she was at this event in Germany where she had spoken about this grace that God offers and this forgiveness that he offers. And she says, after she had been done speaking about this, a, a German man walked up to her and said, Fraulein, do you remember me? And it was one of the guards that had been, been one of the main reasons that her sister Betsy died. And he thrusts out his hands and he says, is that forgiveness available to me as well? And Betsy said that she felt within her this hatred for this man what he had done to her, what he had done to her sister. And she couldn't get past it. And she said, she just said, oh, Jesus, help me. And she extended her hand. She said, as soon as she grabbed that man's hand, she felt the love of God fill her heart and literally like a tingle and energy go through her. And she said she felt love and compassion for this man. She said, you are forgiven. Love. Love for our Lord. Love for others. Is there someone that you are unwilling to forgive? 
You need to ask God to help you because this is the evidence of our faith. Is there someone you need to go to and ask their forgiveness? Because this is how we'll be known. By love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, it's difficult to speak about a man like Judas, a man who who denied the Lord and even went as far as to betray the Lord of glory. But Lord, I thank you for the way that Jesus brings in that contrast who true disciples have a love for you and a love for others as an evidence of our faith. May you help us this morning. Be that loving Christian that displays the love of God to others so that they may come to know you in Jesus' name. Amen.